Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. I'm Dan Schwester, and uh, I got a really uh, cool guest for us today, somebody that I've been waiting to talk to for a while. Um, I followed his work way back, even, you know, going back years. Um, and he's done some really, really cool things. And uh, he went through as uh, being a uh, pararescue man in the Air Force, uh, paramedic, critical care flight paramedic. And now he's a, now he's a physician. Um, he's another one that's done that medic to uh, MD path. And um, he's somebody that has done a lot of work on um, on psychological skills and getting yourself prepared to handle things. Um, so I'm going to introduce you to Dr. Mike Loria. Um, Doc, you want to uh, kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and about your background? And um... Yeah, absolutely. Well, first, thank you so much for having me, Dan. I really appreciate it. It's a, an honor to be invited to, to speak with you. So thank you. Um, by way of background, so I started in like a rural fire department back in 2002, uh, and eventually uh, made my way into the military. So I enlisted in the Air Force to become a pararescue man and was on active duty for about uh, six months or six, six years, rather. And, uh, and then got out and I did uh, a private job teaching for a while for a company called Tier One Group and then went on to uh, work as a critical care flight paramedic for uh, quite a while before going that finally going back to uh uh, medical school and then uh, made it out here to where I am right now for a residency at the University of New Mexico. And I'm currently one of the um, emergency medical services fellows here. That's that's uh, really cool. Um, it's great having another medic to uh, doc uh, route. I think it's great for the profession. Honestly, I think it's great for our profession and it's great for medicine. Uh, so tell, tell us a little bit about pararescue because I, you know, everybody's watched the movies. Everybody knows Navy SEALs. Everybody knows Rangers. Everybody knows special forces. I think this is a specialty that, or a part of the military that people don't really know a lot about. And it's probably one of the most difficult pipelines to get into and get through in the military. Uh, because on top of all of the special operations skills, you've got to be a fully qualified paramedic, right? Correct. Yeah. So what, yeah. what's, so the attrition rate's got to be high. <laughs> uh, the attrition rate is pretty high. I don't know what it is currently, but I can tell you that my class, I think we started out with 72 and graduated six people from the pipeline. So it's a pretty substantial attrition rate. So what, what's the what's the role? Yeah, so um, the career field kind of was, was originated um, during World War II, really is where it has its roots, but really came to prominence in Vietnam. Um, performing combat search and rescue missions. So rescuing down pilots and aviators and whatnot. Um, but the role sort of adapted as the special operations command developed. And these days, it's sort of an integral part of um, both the Air Force and the special operations world, providing what we call combat search and rescue. So being able to um, recover and treat downed pilots or uh, other operators who are seriously injured uh, during combat operations, uh, and then direct action support. So being attached to different teams, um, providing what we call organic combat search and rescue. So part of the actual um, assault team or otherwise uh, uh, providing medical support and technical rescue really um, is the special niche there um for various teams around the world which is uh, pretty cool and a lot of fun so 
Yeah, I, I don't think a lot of people know that, but like if you watched all the movies, they've been there. They they're involved really close with uh, all these other uh, you know all these other teams, and it's 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 kind of it's it's a really cool job because your focus is rescue. Your your focus is saving lives in a in a in an environment where people are trying to take lives. It's uh it's yeah. kind of it's kind of wild. Um, so is that where you started to get your interest in the, you know, we're going to talk about psychological skills and the things you need to know, like in stressful environments to actually do better. Um, is that where that started? Is that where initially in your training, is that where you started seeing some of this stuff or is that what they, t- they taught you in the pipeline? Well, interestingly enough. So yes, uh, in general, that's, that's pretty much where the interest came from, um, was working with various special operations teams and, getting exposed to specialized training and all sorts of things. And um, I would say being part of uh, not just from a combat perspective, but also the civilian mission of the career field is, uh, is pretty prominent as well. So there are very rescue, various rescue units around the country that do a lot of civilian missions up to including, you know, um, very distant offshore hundreds of miles off the coast of um, uh, the United States doing rescue missions in the middle of the ocean, doing rescue missions on top of uh, Denali, and uh, I mean, you name it, it's really a host of other things outside of combat as well. But by definition, <laughs> those missions are uh, particularly treacherous, uh, particularly challenging. Uh, or in some way, shape, or form, very dangerous. Because uh, if they were pretty straightforward, they generally don't call us. Um, so regardless of whether you're doing it on the civilian side or on the military side, uh, and again, on the military side, it's like, by definition, not a very you know straightforward evac- medical evacuation. Um, they're usually slightly more challenging or slightly more dangerous scenarios. Um, it, uh, what I think it does is it breeds in people, um, the, the behavioral pressure to adapt various skills to deal with that environment. Um, and smart people will always, um, find ways, whether it's, you know, tweaking gear or, um, whether it's, um, developing new technology or developing habits that help them survive. As it turns out, not dying is a very good incentive to uh, to get better at things and uh, improve your performance. And a lot of people had adapted these skills. And I saw it not just in our career field on uh, some of the guys that I looked up to. And there were some amazing, very experienced um, pararescue men. Uh, that were there when I got in in 2005, because it was sort of, uh, you know, by the time I made it out to my unit, that was sort of the the high time for both uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. So um, there, but you see parallels in other special operations career fields. So people who independently um, uh, as uh, rangers or special forces operators or the Naval Special Warfare guys um, had adapted some of these skills for the tactic in, into the tactical environment. I thought that was really kind of wild. And then when I started to look at it and learn more about it and read more about it, what you begin to see is in essentially any high performance environment, whether it's, 
you know, Formula One car racing, or it's NASA, or it's, um, you know, the FBI, or it's the military, or I mean, or professional athletes, um, people have adapted different um, uh, behavioral techniques and psychological skills to be able to perform under really high amounts of stress and really stressful environments. And I thought that was fascinating. And what I realized was, especially on the civilian side of things, whether you're a paramedic or you're an EMT or you're a, you know, a paramedic practitioner working in the field or you're an EMS physician, you name it, that was like totally, totally uh, not a thing. Like you, you just did not, you just did not see that uh, flow over. It was very isolated and insular from, a, from that particular aspect of things. Uh, and I found that very surprising because uh, our performance is really important as it turns out on a daily basis, you know, whether someone's having a heart attack or shortness of breath or chest pain, or it's a bad car accident, or you name it, our, our performance directly impacts our ability to think about things, recall information, perform technical skills, all of these things. Um, we may not be getting shot at on a daily basis. We may not be in a combat zone. We may not be, you know, doing a lunar landing, but uh, this is really important for our community because uh, our performance is uh, directly affects, our performance directly affects the clinical outcomes of, um, of what we do on a daily basis. And I think that's really important. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's really important. And it's something that we don't, teach our, you know, our initial entry students, EMT and paramedic students don't get this. And I think we, they've also been indoctrinated a little bit into the media world of, you know, you watch these TV shows and we all listen, we all hate watch them, right? We'll, we'll turn on like, I'll, I'll do an experiment like once in a while, or I'll try to turn on one of these shows and I'll see how far I can get before I throw something at the TV or I just get up and go, this is, I can't <laughs> like, just come on. Um, I think we have, I think, especially newer people in it, and it, and it translates into experienced um, people in the civilian world or clinicians that you got to be amped up. You got to be fired up. You've got to be, you, you've got to be, you know, the adrenaline's got to be flowing to be good at, at things or to be good on a call or be good on a resuscitation and function. And I think after a while, if you if you're experienced, you start to realize that that's counterproductive. Your 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 sympathetic nervous system can be good. I mean, if you're trying to avoid being run over by a car, for example, but in a situation where you have to do a lot of fine motor skills or you have to think ahead a couple moves, you know, like like a complicated resuscitation or a really sick trauma patient that gets in the back of the rig and now you're you've got to prioritize things. That works against us, doesn't it? Yeah. So definitely like increased stimulation or too much, um, or hyper arousal as some people call it can be, um, can definitely have some negative effects. It can have some negative effects on like fine motor skills and other stuff that you, I, I would argue you'd absolutely need. Um, but it also has pretty substantial effects on your cognitive faculties as well. How you think about things, how you perceive information, how you process that information, and how you pull stuff out of your long-term memory. Um, or even having the wherewithal to like look at your clinical guidelines. All of that stuff um, requires processing ability. Um, so it's, it is, it can definitely be deleterious on a, a host of very important faculties for you to, uh, perform your job. 
So that's a good point. And that's something I think we need to stress to the audience is, you know, guys, gang, when you're talking about when you're in a, when you're on a call and you're, you're in the middle of things and your heart rates up and you're, you're feeling stress or you're feeling you're, you see that you feel that amped up feeling in your, in your body, it's degrading your performance. You're going to miss things as your heart rate goes up. And as this adrenaline gets into your system, you, you get tunnel vision. You we've all seen this, you know, we've all seen on the call where it starts to go sideways, that there's that one person who's, you know, laser focused on something that's not important or they're not listening or they can't hear you or they're fumbling with equipment. We've all seen this. And that's a direct result of your body's stress hormones and your catecholamines dumping into your system and you not being able to control them. Does that sound like I'm kind of getting it? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's more or less the gist of it. A little bit is super helpful, right? Cause it gets you, like you said, it gets you like awake, it gets you amped, it gets you ready to perform, but um, too much can definitely be deleterious. And I think the thing that we don't getting back to what you mentioned about, um, you know, this, how we teach it and the fact that we do it well, the fact that we don't teach it or present it to people, especially new people mm-hmm. is actually really counterproductive because if, if you think about it by the very nature of what we do, yeah, we do a lot of milk runs. We do a lot of back pain and toe pain. And, you know, um, I, I'm out of my medicine, take me to the emergency department, all that stuff. But a lot of what we do too are like legitimate emergencies, which are by nature, a very stressful environment. And by nature, very, um, time sensitive. There's a significant amount of time pressure. Um, not to mention other things like the whole, the whole bunch of family members standing around screaming or praying or begging, or, I mean, you name it. So I think that, um, when we don't adapt our teaching and we don't present to people the normal processes that will go on under these circumstances, you really you know, doing yourself, uh, we're not doing ourselves any favors. That's for sure. Um, because we, we teach this stuff and we teach this information so that people can pass the national registry and that people can get a job and that people can, you know, pass the credentialing for whatever fire department or EMS agency they work for. But in reality, the gold standard is, can they do it when it counts, right? We, we, we teach this stuff, you know, 12 leads and we teach airway management and we teach, you know, respiratory emergencies, not so you can pass a test and get a piece of paper to put in your wallet. We teach it so that you can do it when it counts so that, you know, like you can help your neighbors when they're super sick and parry arrest. And, you know, that's, that's really it. But the connection there between what we teach you in the classroom, what you can remember on a test and what you can actually pull out of the back of your brain or make happen at two o'clock in the morning at some old lady's house is completely different. Right. <laughs> it, 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 you know, just because you can answer a computer-based, you know, question on the national registry exam does not mean you can actually put all the pieces together and make it happen when it really counts. Uh, and until we, until we address that bridge, and there's several things, not just the psychological skills, but until we really start to think about that, I think we're still going to, we're, we're not really going to push the dial or push the needle on this too much. Yeah. And there's, there's also a, a branch of there's, there's, there's educators that are bring, trying to bring this into the, the teaching environment. So that we're getting some experience 
in our new people so that when they get out and it's not the first time they've ever had some stress and you, you term it, it's stress inoculation training, right? Um, just, I know we could do like three hours on that alone, but just briefly talk about, can you talk about that and what, like give an example of how we, how you can incorporate some of this into your training? Yeah. So that's an awesome question. Uh, and the answer is full disclosure. It is a uh, not completely evidence-based um, technique that we've adapted that seems to work pretty well, but I have no definitive proof that says, especially in the emergency medicine world, that it would uh, be really make a significant clinical difference. But my hypothesis is, uh, and I would submit to you that I think it's worth it, um, and it is basically a technique that was adapted from the um, from the 70s and 80s by um, initially was developed by a psychologist named uh, Mietchenbaum, who basically took people who, who had experienced incredibly stressful events. And after the event, um, he went back and, and performed a series of basically um, cognitive behavioral training that desensitized them to the thing that got, you know, they got, they got shot or stabbed on like a bus. Right. So he would eventually, you know, he would talk about it and then he would uh, talk about the bus and he would take them to look at a bus and then we'd go to the bus stop and then they would get on the bus. And it was like this slow progression of getting them used to the stressful stimulus and giving them the skills to deal with it. And we sort of adapted that um, in the military and others have attempted to adapt that um, in a, in various shapes and forms. And sometimes it works, it seems to work very well and others perhaps not much of a benefit, um, but certainly not much of a drawback in some situations. I think the most important thing to understand is that the entire philosophy, the entire concept revolves, is, is actually more structured than, than most people think and revolves around essentially three phases with a couple of different goals. So like the goals are really to get people comfortable in the environment and to be able to apply skills when they're super stressed out, um, to get to understand their individual reaction to stress because people will react differently and will react to different things and then apply the psychological skills to like calm themselves down and stay focused like an Olympic athlete would. Uh, and then to build their confidence, right. To let them realize like that was a really rough scenario, but you were able to calm yourself down and stay focused and you figured it out and you got through it. And that builds people's confidence, which is probably the most, really the most important thing, especially in new people uh, in terms of, uh, their performance and development. We know that confidence is directly linked to their, their future performance or better performance. Um, the way we do that, kind of like how I mentioned, is sort of like a three-phase approach. And I certainly don't feel that the, the first phase is inappropriate at any point in um, pre-hospital emergency care training to present to people. And that's just telling them what the normal response and reaction is. Uh, it's basically adjusting their expectations. So you're like, look, this is totally normal. What's going to happen is you're going to, you know, start sweating. You're going to feel like you have a bowel movement. You're going to feel like an idiot because you feel like you forget things. You're going to have auditory exclusion. You're going to get tunnel vision, all these things. In fact, just when you adjust people's expectations and tell them about this stuff, they're actually more likely to perform better. Um, but that is key because what it, what it does is it normalizes things. Um, it, if, especially if it's coming from an experienced paramedic or pre-hospital professional, right? It's like, look, it's happened to me. It happens to everybody. This is a normal thing. Um, people feel less confused and less inadequate and less super stressed out because they know what to expect. Um, 
The second phase is actually the most important phase, but it is also the most overlooked phase, which is skills development, right? It's one thing to be like, hey, you're going to get stressed out and then kick you out into the world and like let you get stressed out with no skills or ability to cope. Like that's <laughs> that's not super helpful as it turns <laughs> out. Um, so the skills development piece is twofold. It's developing the normal clinical skills that we teach people, but it's also giving them the psychological and coping skills in, in stressful scenarios, right? So you're kind of developing both in tandem. And I think you can make a really good argument that the bulk of it is actually the, um, the clinical skills, the clinical decision-making, the usual stuff that we teach. The problem is because of logistics and, or I shouldn't say the problem, one of the challenges is because of the logistical limitations in terms of class time and all these other things, we don't, we probably don't do as good a job as we should. Um, mm -hmm. what we know is that we usually train people until they get it right, right. They can fill out the check sheet. They can do all the steps correctly. They don't make any major errors. But in reality, uh, what we know from studies on expertise and how people get really good at things is that's like just the tip of the iceberg. Really, for uh, days, weeks, months, years after that, what we see is that the time to successful task completion goes down incrementally, and the amount of cognitive resources that it takes begins to decrease as well. So just like just when you start to do be able to do things right and don't screw it up big time, that's like just the beginning. That's barely what you need. What we're really looking for is skills, for example, when it comes to technical skills like mm -hmm. LMA placement or superglottic airway placement or laryngoscopy or IV starting or you name the skill, what you want is automaticity, right? You want to be able to start an IV and give other people direction and instruction at the same time and chew bubble gum and be able to tie your shoe all at the same time. Like that's that's what you really want. The That psychomotor program that we commonly call muscle memory, which I don't like that term at all. It has, it really has very little to do with the muscles or memory. Okay. Um, so it's, uh, it, it's really developing that, that, that neural framework, that neurological framework where you can be like, okay, start the IV. And it's, it's a very natural skill. Um, and, uh, that frees up brain space to think about other things and think about the big picture and what you're going to do next. And two, three, four, five steps ahead of where you're at now. So it's practicing not to get it right. It's practicing so that you can't get it wrong. That's, that's a really great, uh, that's a really great analogy that we use all the time. And what I tell people is it's not, uh, practice till you, uh, get it right. And it's not practice until you can't get it wrong. It's practice until you can't get it wrong. And you can do it really quickly with very few cognitive resources. That's what I tell people. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, you know, that's one of the funny things when, when, you know, you talk to new clinicians or, you, you know, you work with a new clinician and they're, they're kind of gobsmacked when they, they kind of see like how you can walk into a room. You're like, oh yeah, he's to he's this, he's this, it's CHF boom. And they're like, how did you do that? And it's, it's because you've done it so many times. It's, it's, it's grooved into your, your brain that you know what to look for. And then once you see certain cues, you're like, okay, great. I know where this is. I just have to prove this and we can move forward. And it takes, yeah. you know, you compress that it's that system one system two thinking and, you know, it just, it takes time and it takes practice and it takes dedication. Yeah, it really does. And I think that, um, that's one of the limitations, right? Cause we can't keep people on preceptor status or orientee status for five years. That's just a little ridiculous. Uh, and like I said, there are limitations in like how much time we have in paramedic school or EMT school or whatever. 
Um, within those limitations, I think there are some things we can do. But the point is that 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 phase, we usually cut it way short. Um, and uh, unfortunately, there's not a lot of really good answers and in, uh, in terms of improving things if you can't get that phase solid. Um, because the third phase, that stress exposure piece, is all predicated on a really strong second phase two, basically. Yeah, that that's a good point, and it's it, it's important for the the new people listening, you know, the new clinicians to realize it. It's okay, you're not going to be there. We can't we can't expect you to have ten years of experience coming out of field training, and it's important for the senior people or the preceptors and the the field training officers to understand that entry level competence is just entry level. There has to be development. There has to be. We have to keep reinforcing, and we have to keep you know, critiquing, debriefing, all these things, they still need them, even though they've got their card and even though they're out of training. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, there's a, there was a paper that I wrote that, that you wrote that I I read that was really interesting. Um, and, you know, going, just going back, talking about the, um, the idea of, uh, you know, there's no, you have a hypothesis, but there's no evidence behind the stress inoculation training. We do know there are papers out there and I'll put them in the show notes that, that show that, you know, cognitive function declines under stress, unchecked stress. And, you know, some of the sequela of that, like, you know, you, you, we've all had that person who gets tense in a, in a, in a recess and they start snapping at people and they start raising their voice and they're, you know, they, they think they're in command of their faculties or they think they're in charge of things, but they're really not. And we know that just those little interactions have negative effects on our team and it has a negative effect on the patient. Um, things like med errors, things like timely interventions not getting done are a direct result of this. So there is a negative, there is a negative effect on patient care and on providers, uh, health. So, you know, this, this paper, so going into the, the paper, it's uh, it was in the annals of emergency medicine and, you know, there were, there was a couple, there's a couple interesting names on it. You know, I mean, uh, you know, the internet would probably blow up from this. Um, you know, uh, you did this with, uh, Scott Weingart of MCRIP fame and Rory Spiegel, who, um, is also there and a couple other, uh, names. Um, and this was in the annals. It was in 2017. So it's gone back a ways. And it was talking about the skills that you as an individual can, can start to adopt and, start thinking about ways that you can improve your skill performance under stress. Um, so I was really interested in the fact that people, and this, this sounds very crunchy granola, but your breathing is a key element to this. And it's one of the things that you can control. You may not be able to control what's going on around you. You may not be able to control every person on your team or the, the ancillary people like, you know, the cops running around or firemen with tools doing things, but you can control your breathing. And when you control your breathing, that's a direct link to your nervous system. So talk to us about that. And, and if you can, I know it's just, you know, on one podcast, but what are some things that, you know, I'm a new clinician or I'm an experienced clinician and I'm, I, I want to do this better. And I want to be, I want to be the, the person in the room you always want to be that person in the room who's the calm one, who's able to function, who's able to do things under stress. And there are strategies that you can do to improve your practice. So talk to us about that. What are some of the things we can start doing? Yeah, absolutely. So um, 
in general, I think one of the the common threads in a lot of these skills is something that you pointed to. So before I talk to breathe about the breathing specifically, I'll just mention this: the locus of control um, is actually very important. What I mean by that is, if you think that everything around you is just controlling you and swirling you into this uncontrollable nightmare of a call. Um, and you don't have control over the situation or yourself, then that in and of itself is super, super stressful, mm-hmm. right? right. Um, what we call internal locus of control is basically knowing that you have control over how you think and how you feel and how you act, right? Um, so that's sort of like the cognitive behavioral triangle right there. Even though things are going out of control around you and you can't control everything, just understanding that in and of itself is super important. Um, that's where a lot of these skills come in. So take, for example, the breathing. Um, this is a skill that I think in Eastern arts, whether you're talking about yoga, martial arts, you name it, has been saying that's been intuitively understood for thousands of years. And um, interestingly enough, when we look at it under other circumstances, we know that like hyperventilation and doing like really fast shallow, shallow breaths, which people tend to do when they're stressed out, um, can have some negative physiologic sequelae. Um, we know that taking several deep breaths can actually blunt some of those effects of the increased sympathetic tone and activation of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access, that that adrenaline dump that you actually get, which is pretty useful because as you alluded to, like it's really hard to just like make your heart rate go down. It's really hard to just, you know, think better, like tell yourself to think harder. Um, It doesn't really work too well, but um, sort of bypassing uh, and taking advantage of some of those physiologic feedback loops by taking several deep breaths can be super, super helpful. Um, so it's been described in the literature in various ways. So um, in the military, we, we call it tactical breathing because everything is tactical, coyote tan or multicam, right? So it's got to be tactical. Um, but it's also been referred to as like box breathing or performance enhancing breathing. And basically all those things are, uh, are several controlled respiratory cycles where you take a slow, deep breath in, you hold it for several seconds, you let the breath out slowly, and then you hold it out for several seconds. Practically, I think it's important, um, kind of as you alluded to, that a lot of these skills they need to be sort of uh, essentially invisible to other people and to your practice and flow naturally into what you do, right? You can't be like in the middle of like CPR and, you know, like resuscitating someone and be like, all right, everybody stop. We're going to meditate for a second. Just, you know, let's hold hands and hum and you, like it does, that doesn't work. Right. Um, well, it so, would be funny to watch somebody go into like child's pose before they intubated. And like, yeah. what, is, what yeah. are you doing? Like the downward dog intubation. That would be a, <laughs> that would be pretty, it would be pretty entertaining. Um, you know, but, um, or like doing warrior one in the back of the ambulance before you take the gurney out or something like that, that would be funny. Um, but really, so like take, for example, the breathing, the way practically the way I do it is like, if we're, if I'm in the helicopter and I'm working a shift and we're landing at a car accident or we're going into an outside hospital and we know it's just going to be a total 
freaking disaster. Uh, as we land, I'll just take like several deep breaths as we go up to the door or as we like walk into the hospital or as I walk right. into the patient room and you're just like, Oh my gosh, this is gonna, this is gonna be rough. Um, just taking several deep breaths in the middle of it when like people are screaming and yelling and things are going crazy. And you finally have that moment of clarity. You're like, this is nuts. This is a total goat rodeo, man. Take yeah. a couple of deep breaths and then tell everybody to like, Hey guys, just quiet down for one second. I need you to do this. I need you to do that. I need you to stand here. I need you to just leave. And this is what I'm going to do. And, and so like during those periods of time, it can be very, very, very helpful. And I kind of think of it as like, especially when things are getting out of hand, I kind of think of it as like pulling the e-brake on this emotional sympathetic runaway train. That's kind of right. how I think about it. Right. Um, yeah. You had a mnemonic in it and I want to go over each one of them because we've already done the B it's a uh, beat the stress fool. And um, the uh, picture of Mr. T on the um, paper is really funny, um, but we've already talked about breathing and box breathing. We'll put this in the show notes. This is something that you can do like, like, you know, like you said, you can do this on the way to a call. You can do this before, while you're setting up to do an intubation you're, or while you're setting up your equipment, you can just take a breath and you, it clears you and it, foc- it helps you focus better. It slows your heart rate down and it, and it can help pull you back from a situation where you're starting to get all tense and stressed. And, you know, I know like I, I, I started doing it myself and, you know, like where you feel like your shoulders are getting tight and your neck's getting tight and your jaw's getting set. And those are the, for me, it's like, okay, all right, let's think about what we have to do here. It, it does work. We don't, we don't teach it. We probably should teach it. It should be probably be part of the, the training program for EMTs and paramedics, but this is something individually you can adopt into your own practice today. And the box breath is really simple. It's in for four, hold for four, out for four, hold for four. And if you do it for a few cycles, you, you'll see, you get there, you feel that adrenaline kind of subside. You're, you're not going to go to sleep. It's not a meditation. You're not going to be in a trance, but you're, you're able to kind of see better. And you notice your, your, your vision gets a little clearer and you can see what the guy down at the foot of the bed's doing. And you can see what the fire guy's doing over on the corner here. Um, so it's a really good, simple technique. And it's something that we can adopt. Um, talk about, talk about self-talk. Cause this is, this is kind of cool. Um, you can, this is something that I know athletes have done. And I know other people in stressful situations have done, you know, have trained to do. This is something you can kind of, you can get your mind ready for these situations by kind of just mental rehearsal and talking to yourself. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, it's interesting. So in the, in the world of cognitive science and psychology, we call this cognitive reframing. Um, and it is part, again, going back to like that, that, that key concept of the internal locus of control. It's basically taking a situation and refocusing your brain on two things, refocusing your brain on whatever you want it to focus on, number one, and sort of uh, also putting you in the driver's seat and, and making it clear that you're back in control. So, for example, like we had... Um, and by the way, this stuff still happens to me. Okay. So I've been probably, I've been doing EMS stuff since like 2002. I know there are probably some listeners and people other that have been doing it even longer. Um, and even as an EMS fellow, like I'll, I'll show up on scene after 
hundreds, thousands of, of calls. And still there'll be things that freak me out. So we had a call um, a couple months ago, several months ago, where um, it came in as a, a young kid, I think like three or four years old, six Delta something or other. So difficulty breathing. Uh, and then uh, we were told that um, the kid is no longer responsive. And so like I'm flying out there and met up with an amazing crew from the Albuquerque fire department who literally saved this kid's life. Um, but, uh, as I'm, as I'm pulling up, they are, um, I see one of them pulling up medications in the back of the ambulance. The mother met them like out front of the house and like hands them this gray, sweaty, flaccid, you know, kid. And they, and immediately my heart rate goes up. I'm like, Oh, this is not good. Like, they we're going to be doing like a P we're going to be running a pediatric code here in a few seconds and um, goes to the back of the ambulance. Mm -hmm. And those situations still stress me out in the emergency department, outside the emergency department. Right. And um, that the, the dialogue that you have with yourself, the time honored saying is whether you think you can, or you think you can't, you're probably right. And as it turns out that um, the, the dialogue that you have with yourself in your mind is really, really important. Because when you start to say, like, oh, my gosh, this kid's going to die. Like, this isn't going to be very good. Like, how am I going to explain this to the boss? What happens if I screw something up? This mom's right here. Oh, she's going to watch her kid die, and it's going to be my fault. That, that, that negative focus of things distracts your brain and fills up all that cognitive bandwidth with, like, this negative self-talk and these negative perseverations. And what it does is if it's full, like if that bandwidth is saturated with all that stuff, you're not thinking about the goal-directed behaviors that you need to do, the drugs, the interventions, the, all that other stuff. And that's really important. And so when you begin to change that internal dialogue, as you're getting out of the car, at the, you're getting out of the ambulance, you're getting off the fire engine, you're getting out of your fly car, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is, you know what? This kid, this, this kid looks like he's about to die. But you know what? This is my opportunity to save this kid's life. There's, it is me or no one else. No one else is coming to help me. Um, I, I need to be on point. I can do this. I've done this before. Even if you haven't done this before, I've trained to this. I have my guidelines. I have other guys here to help me that are in the same boat. Um, but I need to act now that, that basically, um, changes you or begins to sort of shift you from more of a threat mindset where you're like, Oh my gosh, if I screw this up, like I just got to keep this kid alive. Cause if I screw this up, I'm going to be in trouble. And then it's going to be the newspapers and the chief's going to read me out and blah, blah, blah. Um, to a situation where you begin to develop and execute goal directed behaviors. All right. If nothing else, I know like ABCs or March or whatever. Like if, if, if this kid, I know he is, his, his mom said he had a history of asthma and he's had multiple, you know, anaphylactic um, reactions to bee stings and stuff like that. And he was outside two minutes ago, fine. And now all of a sudden he can't breathe. He's wheezing. He's gray, pale, hypotensive, tachycardic, right? Oh, now I, yeah, epinephrine. He, I, that is the first move. I need to give this kid, I am epinephrine. And it's interesting because as soon as you hit that first wicket, right? Um, you tend to develop this thing called cognitive momentum where you get the first thing, you tend to be more successful at getting the second thing and the third thing and the fourth thing. And once you're going down that pathway, it's very funny. Like once you're engaged and you're doing stuff, um, you're, you tend to like those negative thoughts, 
um, tend to not be there because your brain is now focusing on the, on the stuff moving ahead. And the, the crux there is, you know, you throw on the brake with the breathing, but then you begin to shift your mindset with that positive self-talk. And that cognitive reframing of the situation is really, really important because it begins to calm you down and it begins to focus your brain on the most important stuff. And um, that, that language, by the way, can take on multiple forms. So uh, lucky for us, it can be both um, inspirational, but it can also be um, uh, very task-specific. Task so even if you're filling up your brain with you know, um, open up the kid's airway, breathe for the kid. I am epinephrine. Like you tell yourself those three things like loop, swoop, and pull. And I'm like teaching, you know, like, like when, when you, you know, I watch uh, some of my friends teach their kids how to like tie their shoes. Right. They just say that over again, like loop, swoop, and pull loop, swoop, and pull. Right. If, if you can just fill your brain with that, those specific things, and you can come up with those dialogues for essentially any skill, whether it's uh, a rescue skill, a suppression skill, an emergency medical skill, um, when your brain focuses on that, you're, um, you're, you are more likely to both be successful and less likely to commit errors or do things incorrectly. Right. In incremental success, right? You don't look, at, don't look at the whole situation because you're just going to overwhelm yourself. Get one task done, then move to the next one, then move to the next one get every, and then keep moving forward and you get momentum. And then you start to turn the corner and you're like, all right, we got this. We can start doing this. We're starting to see things. This is improving. We're doing this. We've got this done. And you can almost see, you know, without putting a name on it, we've all been in these situations. We've seen this happen where everybody's like, like you said, the kid or the really broken trauma and okay, all of a sudden now we've got an airway and now we're doing this and now we're getting, you know, now we're getting things splinted. We've got a binder on them and, and now we're starting to see some improvement. And now we, now we got something to work with here or your cardiac arrest, same thing. You know, um, this is something that we do in good situation. We, we just don't notice it. And we, I think we really need to take fo focus on it and, and recognize that. Um, one of the other things is, is mental rehearsal. This is kind of cool because this is, you know, something that, you know, people don't realize, um, but it has a lot of value. If, and to boil it down, it's, it's basically, if you, if you can see yourself doing something successfully, you're more likely to be successful. Yeah. So that's, that's actually a really good way to think about it. Um, this, this, I think, is one of the most interesting things um, because in various domains, it seems to uh, hold a significant amount of weight. So when people who study expertise and how people get really good at stuff, um, look at them and do interviews and see how they perform and what their behaviors are um, in practice and training and all of us that make them so good. One of those key pieces is what the, what's been called mental representations, how they see the chessboard or how they see their um, strategy for fire attack and suppression or how they see the tactical mission going down in their brain, like how they mentally simulate it and how they run through it. Um, and that, that is interesting because it directly 
affects uh, and or directly ties into this this concept of mental practice, which actually has been shown to I- improve performance in a, in a number of domains, sports, you, you, you name it. Uh, and we do have some basic science that actually provides a reasonable justification for why. Um, so it seems like when you do functional MRI scanning of people who are just thinking about a task, granted those tasks, at least in the experimental world, are simple skills like playing a piano or swinging a golf club. And then you actually MRI those same people doing a task. Mm-hmm. Um, the, it basically shows that flow to the same exact parts of the brain is essentially the same. And that the, the corollary for that increased blood flow is increased activity in those parts of the brain. So what we think is that um, when you actually think through that exercise, and you mentally simulate it, you're activating the same neural architecture that you would um, if you were to actually do it with the exception of like the motor cortices telling your brain to actually, you know, like squeeze the trigger or start the IV or whatever that skill might be. That to me is fascinating because essentially what that gives you is in a situation that's very low frequency and um, high risk, Uh, because we're not intubating people every single day in the field. Um, We're not performing very invasive procedures every, I mean, you might be, and if you are, congratulations, that's a pretty high acuity system, but most of the systems that I know you're not, um, you have the opportunity to practice that um, by just thinking through it. And this has been studied. So that has been studied in the setting of emergency medicine, which which seems to show some benefit to um, mentally rehearsing those uh, those particular skills. Um, this is something that I also think can be incorporated into your practice. This is something that professional athletes do all the time. Right. It's something that I know uh, special operations personnel will run through, whether they're, you know, they're doing a personnel drop, free fall parachuting, whether they're doing a tactical operation, whether it's, whether it's various shooting drills, you'll see professional, like people, uh, very experienced marksmen in the military and also at competition uh, mm-hmm. uh, in uh, shooting competitions where they'll, you'll see them like running through the, the running through things in their head before they get going. It's something you can absolutely do, right? Because if you're going out to a call that is, um, shortness of breath, difficulty breathing or chest pain or known cardiac arrest, you can run through in your head be like, okay, I'm going to get there on scene. The most important thing is that we're doing really good compressions. We're minimizing interruptions. And then the next things are, you know, dropping that supraglottic airway, getting access, starting the drug, like all those things that can be super, super helpful. And if it's discrete skills, like, oh, I think this, you know, it sounds like a CH effort. Like you're already thinking through the steps of setting up the BiPAP and doing all those other things that are part of your clinical guidelines. So I think that is super, super helpful. Yeah. I, I, I think back when I was, the first time I saw this, I was, there was uh, I was watching TV and there was a, they were, they had the blue angels on and they were talking, they were, uh, they were preparing for a show and it just kind of was a documentary. And the wildest thing of the whole thing wasn't the flying the planes that they were sitting around the table and they were all listening to the leader and they had their eyes closed. And he was telling them exactly what, what was going to happen during the show, every maneuver when, you know, step by step. And they were all, you could see, they were all visualizing it in their heads. They weren't flying. They weren't in the simulator. They were using their internal simulator. They were literally flying the planes and they could, you know, in their mind, they were seeing it. Um, this is a really, really cool thing. Um, and it has a lot of benefits. 
um, it, it really does work. It sounds, it, it sounds weird, but it yeah. works. It sounds kind of hokey. It sounds kind of, you know, bizarre and like, what the heck? But um, yeah, it's, it actually it, is very, it's, it's relatively, it's, it's cheap. You can do it quickly. You can do it in your head, uh, like on the way to a call or in the middle of a call or right before a procedure. Um, right, or even, or even like, you know, for a student, like you're going in for your practical exam, your psychomotor exam for national registry. And you're like, okay, I'm at this station. I can see myself going in. I can see myself talking to the examiner. I can see the equipment. I can check it out. I'm going to check everything. I'm going to do the procedure. I'm going to talk about why I'm doing it. And it works because you, you're, you're already anticipating it. Your stress levels dropping. You don't have those stress hormones. You don't have the catecholamine dump and you're not going to, and you're less likely to make those errors that you're worried about making in the first place. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I think you just touched on a super, super, super important point, which I was uh, remiss to not mention before, is that these things are called psychological skills for a reason, is that they're skills like these, these things in and of themselves need to be practiced and sort of ingrained into your behavior. And you mentioned the student stuff, which I think is super important because developing these habits now is is setting you up for success down the road right so yeah. i would i would um i would hasten to add that all of these skills whether it's the breathing whether it's the um, positive self-talk whether it's the mental simulation or all those things together if you get used to doing that like you're doing a practice you know you're at doing a practical skill station as part of the normal uh curriculum you're doing a simulation you're doing whatever so you're you're practicing those skills in the simulation you're practicing those skills before your block exams you're practicing those skills before you go into take your national registry exam developing those skills as part of what we call a habit loop right you start to feel stressed oh my gosh I'm, about, I'm gonna have to leave this next simulation you do those psychological skills you calm down you feel better you're actually more likely to do those skills in the future so you're building those behavioral habits now that's actually really really important thank you for mentioning that no it's it's really it's really cool stuff it's it's it, it has a lot of applications uh, and I think we're just scratching the surface of it. So before we, before we go, cause I know I got a hard out, um, we're coming on, on it, but I mean, like I could sit here all day, but we have a, <laughs> yeah. you know, I have a driveway full of snow. So <laughs> it's, uh, um, talk about the trigger word. Um, this is a, this is a cue that I read in the paper that was really interesting to me that you can kind of condition yourself to use a, a, a phrase or a word that will get you on point, so to speak. And this is something, again, high-performing people do. These, these people in these stressful environments, they use this. So can you talk about this trigger word and you know, what, what, is it, what is it? How does it work? How does it apply to the other facets of, of this formula? Yeah. So um, the trigger word is actually really interesting. And, and I think that um, it's super, super important because regardless of what skill or what you are doing, um, a lot of the time, the hardest thing and the most anxiety provoking part is right before you do that thing or you start that thing. It's right before the race. It's right before you start the test. It's right before you go into the patient's house because the anticipation and anxiety around that is um, uh, is, is, is actually pretty significant. 
And once you get going, like we were talking about before, like once the cardiac arrest is running or once you're in the middle of the race, your brain is really focused on that race or, or whatever you're doing. Um, so a lot of the time getting over that, getting that cognitive momentum to get over that hill and start what you're doing or get going is, um, it's really, really important that, that, that activation energy is pretty significant. So the idea behind the trigger word is to convert you or start you or, um, ignite you from that, uh, contemplative phase or thinking about things or getting ready to do things to actually doing them. The trigger word is also really important because um, what I tell people is that what your brain can attend to or what it pays attention to um, is super, super important. Um, if it is, and I kind of, the analogy I kind of tell people is it's kind of like a flashlight. You can twist it so that it's broad and very diffuse light uh, and lights up the whole room. And that's pretty good if you're running a mass casualty or you are, um, you know, running a, 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 the scene of a large car accident or, or something like that. It can, it can be useful. But in general, if you are doing discrete skills as a practitioner, um, the, what we know is that whether you're analyzing a blood gas or you're thinking about the patient's signs and symptoms, or you're really trying to focus on your physical evaluation of the patient, any of those discrete skills where you're really trying to think through a lot of stuff, um, you need to be very focused. So the, the more focused and tight and bright that light is, uh, of your attention, the better, the more it's distracted, the more likely you are to commit errors and or not complete a task successfully. So the other piece of the puzzle is it's not just getting over the hump, but it's focusing your brain on, um, on, the, on the next step or the starting step or the execution step of pushing the drugs, starting the laryngoscopy, doing whatever whatever the task at hand is. Uh, and so the word I use is focus. Um, I have other friends or a friend who is a, a, a climber and a very avid skier um, who is also a, a paramedic and he used the word send it. That's like, that was his go word for when, um, you know, when he was, when he was just totally smoked and he knew he'd need to run a route out or he was, you know, standing on top of a cornice and he knew he just needed to drop in and, and get the run going. That was like, that was his word. That was his little phrase. So uh, that was, that was, that turned out to be the phrase that he used uh, in these situations and it, it seemed to work. So. Yeah. And, and it's something you don't have to make a big deal out of it. It can just be internal. You, nobody has to know what it is. Um, but it, it does, it, it kind of gets you on point and it gets you ready to go in and open that door and see that patient or open the back of the ambulance and, and, you know, get in there and start doing what you need to do. Um, this has been really, really cool. Um, I think if people start to adapt this into their practice, um, even informally, I think it's, it's, um, this is something that really will help clinicians, especially newer clinicians, but even, you know, even old, old timers and, and seasoned people can, you know, this is not a heavy lift gang. You can, you can adopt this very quietly and very slowly, and you'll, you'll see the improvements. Um, this is a really, really cool thing about your brain and about getting your brain to do the things we need it to do under stress. Um, so Dr. Loria, what, where can people find out more about this stuff and uh, when, where, the, where can they find you on the internet? 
Yeah, interested. so um, my Twitter handle is at uh, Recess Padawan, and uh, people can always uh, find me there. I always I came up with that one because um, uh, I dropped off a patient in the ICU at one point when I was a flight paramedic, and uh, one of uh, one of the attendings said that was awesome. That was like Jedi level, man. And I was like, oh, I'm not quite there yet. The Force is strong, but I'm not a Jedi yet, <laughs> and so. Uh, that sort of became the Twitter handle. And then uh, all the stuff, uh, if you just search my name on MCRIT, you'll see all of the human factors stuff that I've written. Haven't written anything. Yeah, been a little busy in the past uh, year or two, but... Um, yeah, I can't imagine why. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, all the stuff from uh, previous writing, including all the references and all the articles and whatnot is there. Or you can look up the uh, Annals of Emergency Medicine um, article, which I think is a pretty good summary with um, all of the citations as well. So, yeah, and we're going to we're going to link to this all in the show notes like we do, gang. So um, it'll be easy to find. Um, but Mike Gloria, thank you so much for coming in. Um, this was a really great episode and I, I learned a lot. I know. The people that are listening are going to learn a lot and we're going to help people uh, even better than we do because we adopt this stuff. So uh, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, no problem. You guys are totally welcome. It was an honor and um, strong work with an amazing podcast. And this is really a, a cool thing that you guys are doing. Yeah. Thanks. Appreciate it. Okay, everybody. So that's it for the overrun. I'm Dan Schwester uh, and uh, get home safe. <laughs>